0: So this morning, and uh, I believe next week, I want to focus on a very important theme that I've been really uh, looking at a lot myself in the last month, which is the theme of keeping equanimity in the midst of action. Of keeping that sense of balance and presence and wisdom and really, ultimately, a connected heart in the midst of action. Uh, Quite challenging, right? Keeping that balance. um, Developing more ability to be with what's challenging, what's difficult, what can normally startle us or knock us off-center. And how to see our practice as, in part, a training in developing greater equanimity in action. And I was reflecting on this a lot, in part because of the circumstances personally, in the last month. And I, uh, as um, many of you know, most of you know probably, I was on retreat the whole month of March, up in the retreat area. Uh, Very glorious, a privilege to have a month to be on retreat. And beautiful, powerful, wonderful, a lot of equanimity. (laughs) Quite wonderful. And um, two circumstances made it challenging after the retreat. One is that I had originally intended to be on retreat in February, not in March. And so I had lined up teaching in April (coughs) including early April, including having to drive three hours the day after the retreat to teach in Chico. (laughs) Including, since I came out of retreat April 2nd, four trips to teach since then. That was in the last, what, uh, 25 days, (coughs) four times away, including immediately afterwards, plus, The day before the retreat ended, I learned of a kind of family uh, need, kind of some some larger family needs, which have taken a lot of concern and time and energy. And sometimes been challenging, sometimes for, for different reasons, challenging. And so I've been reflecting a lot on, you know, just how to maintain that beautiful equanimity from the retreat and watching it sometimes um, be challenged, be tested, be, what, um, I've joked with a few friends, this is advanced practice (laughs) (laughs) sometimes to actually keep that same quality of um, stability, which can develop on retreat, and have that be in daily life. And actually, a lot of the old texts say exactly the same thing. You know, it's beautiful to develop a certain stabilization of awareness, of clarity, of equanimity, and retreat. But then the next step is when there's not, when there are not those special conditions. Because ultimately we're not looking for wisdom and compassion that's dependent on special conditions, but rather that's there, whatever the conditions are. We make use of special conditions, like being here this morning, or retreat, or quiet time, which is extremely precious, and in many ways it's hard sometimes to develop further without those conditions. So those special conditions are really, really crucial. And yet, if we get dependent on those conditions, then we, well, we could say it in different ways, but I would say we have some more work to do, (laughs) right? Or we have some further work to do. So I've been reflecting on that quite a lot in terms of the last um, uh, the last month, per- quite personally. And I was, I was reflecting that I think the essence of um, equanimity has a few qualities. Literally, upek, uh, upeka is the word in Pali. Equanimity is a translation. It's kind of a Kind of a strange English word, isn't it? I don't use the word equanimity except much to refer to it, the translation of Upeka, or this particular quality in the teachings. You know, I don't in daily life hear a lot of people going around saying, oh, he was so equanimous, or she should develop more equanimity, or whatever. You know, so it's but it's a good word. And (laughs) uh, But the the word in the Pali language, the P-A-L-I, the language that the discourses of the Buddha were in, it literally means balance. And I think that is a core aspect of it. It's the ability, really, to be balanced with whatever's happening. And it's an interesting term. Traditionally, equanimity, as a sense of balance, meant the ability to be with a variety of experiences and not be reactive, not be, as it were, knocked around. You know, there's a beautiful, famous quotation from the Buddha instructing his son. His son uh, was named Rahula. And this is this passage about this non-reactivity, the ability to be Increasingly with anything that comes, as it were, down the pike, <laughs> you know. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the Earth. It's suitable for a few days after Earth Day. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the Earth, for when you develop meditation that is like the Earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, in spittle, pus and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain." It's a tall order, right? To, but that's the direction of the training. It's, it's non-reactivity. That's one sense of balance. It's to be able to be there with whatever's occurring. And in many ways, we train for that all the time in our meditation and when we bring the meditation off the cushion. Every time you're with something difficult, every time we're with something difficult in meditation or just in the flow of daily life, and we bring mindfulness and awareness and compassion to it, we're developing in equanimity. It's helpful to say that sometimes, you know, in other words, this is to take everything as a learning process. When that starts to happen, our practice accelerates, right? You know, it's in a Tibetan phrase from the Lojong teachings, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. That's equanimity training. Uh, Challenging things happen. And it actually can also be challenging to have good things happen and wonderful states happen and not grab hold of them, not grasp onto them. So it's actually not just the trainings, not just with the difficult or the challenging, but actually with the beautiful, with the wonderful, with the um, blissful, and to just have some equanimity there too. But probably for most of us the trainings, especially with the challenging states, so anytime you have something challenging occur, You can say, oh, I'm a chance to develop an equanimity. Not our usual approach to the challenging or difficult situations, right? What's our usual approach to difficult situations? Mm -hmm. Rage. Rage. Oh, rats. Or more colorful language, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right, so... um, so we, we develop in that way, and just in doing our practice, we develop that kind of balance and non-reactivity. Traditionally, the quality of equanimity is especially talked about in the Buddhist tradition as a wisdom quality. It's connected very much with wisdom, the wisdom that leads to non-reactivity in part, you know, that the wisdom that can say, I'm having something difficult happening, let me use my tools, let me see this as a learning process, rather than a curse, right? Um, that wisdom can guide us in that way. And its equanimity is, is really the... Um, uh, what, really, especially understood as this wisdom quality, but I think it's also... <coughs> Um, and this is especially when we look at equanimity as one of the four divine abodes linked with loving-kindness, compassion, and joy, because it is one of a set with those. When it's connected with those, it also starts to ta- have, take on heart qualities, we might say, and have the qualities of love and compassion and joy integrated with equanimity. So it's, it becomes not just wisdom, but compassionate wisdom, or we might say the wise heart. So the wisdom and the heart get connected. And we'll see later that one of the distortions of equanimity is that the heart isn't so much there. It can be this aloof wisdom, right, that can say, all things just come and go, and the heart's not really there, right? It can be overly intellectual, or can be overly, what, uh, distant or removed, or the classical distortion of equanimity that's pointed out is indifference. It can look like equanimity, but it really is distorted. And so our practice of equanimity has to look out for these distortions that the heart's not fully there. And I've also been reflecting, this is not in the classical text, but I think the body has to always be there. And maybe this is for us in this culture where I think relating to our bodies is often problematic in a variety of ways. You know, I mean, that's why we have Earth Day, because culturally we have not related well to the earth body. And our survival depends on shifting that, right? But it's also, <clears throat> we, we can also know that um, culturally, over the last few hundred years, there's been a kind of disconnection of mind and body. That's quite pervasive. And, you know, uh, there's been reversals of that, especially with all the interest in uh, yoga And maybe Qigong and mind body medicine and so forth, a lot of shifts in that. But I know that when I teach meditation, it's still very hard for most people I work with, and this was true for myself, to actually have a strong awareness of the body. It's interesting, you know, it's a big issue. Our minds are very active, and the electronic media kind of accelerate that, right? You know, we're always you know, doing things, looking this, being stimulated this way or that. And that, those, those can very much take us out of our bodies. You know? So, I have found in my own practice that it's really important to have a real strong body, body aspect, or somatic aspect, also to equanimity. One way I could express that is like this, uh, very, quite personally. Um, I think my original condition conditioning, was to kind of lead with my mind, partly as a man in the society growing up, you know. So that would mean, um, even though I think my nature was to have a pretty open, sensitive heart, you know, like I cried during Driver Ed movies. I mean, who else <laughs> cried during Driver Ed movies? <laughs> yeah. Did you? everyone see Driver Ed movies? Did you have Driver Ed movies and where you grew up, you know? You know, know, some of you did, right? There's, they showed awful, gory movies of crashes to, you know, like, 15-year-olds to somehow to make them drive more safely. I, I, I would question the learning <laughs> philosophy behind that. But, but in any case, I'm just, I know that, anyway. So, but I, my initial conditioning was to be very much in my mind. And I sometimes tell the story when I was a student. Um, uh, I was kind of a student in Germany for a year, and I remember walking down this path, I've told this story, I think, of of realizing that I was just thinking all the time. It was before I was, had learned meditation, but I realized I'm just, no, I think I had started to learn meditation. I realized I was just thinking all the time, and I said, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, uh, and it was kind of unsettling to reflect that but I think it was accurate you know and some of us may have had that conditioning I think a little less for women but it's very varied of course and um, and so then at a certain point there was also uh, kind of openings of the heart and the heart became more available and the mind got started to get more integrated with the mind but I still found and it took actually uh, some training some later training I could have a very pretty clear mind, a very open heart, and if I wasn't really grounded in the body, I would get knocked around a lot emotionally, so to speak, or by situations and occurrences, you know. And it took, actually, a conscious grounding in the body and particularly developing almost like what they call in martial arts, the center, you know, and actually in meditation, putting a lot of attention into the belly and the center is a kind of training that one would have in some martial arts in in China this would be called the tan tien, or in Japan 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 the hara and it would be developed in some of the martial arts and i found that it was very important to develop there and this made it possible sort of to s- still have very open heart and clear mind open mind but have more ability to be equanimous when difficult things were happening and that without that grounding in the body, it was way harder. You know, and I, I actually I think that's uh, quite important probably for many of us. You know, that we can be these beautiful, open-hearted, wise beings and not be fully grounded in the body and, and be um, overly maybe reactive to things in part because of that. So I, I put that out there. You know, and maybe we can focus on that over some weeks, you know, because there are practices that one can do. Uh, you know, one practice that I, you can, some of the more, if you practice the martial arts, you would develop. And then I think probably some, some of the yogic practices. Um, sometimes there are some breathing practices one can do that develop, that kind of rests the attention down in the belly. I did for probably two years, my, one of my major practices was just to situate my awareness in my belly all the time. So there it is. <laughs> you want to do it, come back in two years. <laughs> so, but in any case, I think that's a very important aspect of equanimity. So I like this, and again, this isn't in the classical teachings. Maybe, you know, I've reflected on this with friends like um, John Travis, who teaches here, is a great teacher of the body. I learned a lot from him. And we talk about this, and maybe you know, we talk about how in some of those cultures, the mind wasn't developed like it is in Western culture, and maybe they didn't have to focus quite so much on the body. You know, like we talk about Tibetans right now, or Tibetan teachers say the same thing, you know. He said, kind of grounded, earthy, mind's kind of dull. I've heard Tibetan teachers talk like that, you know, so it's not, you know, it comes out of knowledge. It's not ethnocentric, I believe. But um, our conditioning's different, and I think we have, to, not, maybe not for all of us, but for many of us, if we're going to develop equanimity, I think we sometimes have to have a conscious intention to develop at the level of the mind and wisdom, at the level of the heart, and at the level of the body. You know, so that's, um, that's, that's a way to look at it that I think is quite, quite interesting. So, equanimity in the classical Buddhist tradition is taken as a very mature quality. It's sometimes taken as actually close to the sacred because it's this deep, balanced quality with everything, which is taken to be sometimes close to nirvana. And so, when equanimity is mentioned uh, in some of the famous Buddhist lists, you know, uh, when it's mentioned in, for example, the ten. Uh, paramis or paramitas that are the subject of one of Sylvia's books, the book um, Pay Attention for Goodness' Sake. If you know that book, that book is about these ten what we might call virtues or uh, qualities that we develop that are the kind of the signs of a more awakened being. So there are qualities like generosity and patience and being ethical and wisdom and mindfulness and so forth. The last one is equanimity. Last on the list. It's also the last of the seven factors of enlightenment, or the seven factors of awakening, which are mindfulness and um, investigation or inquiry, rapture or joy, energy, tranquility, concentration, and then last, equanimity. Last on the list. It's also the last of these four stations of the heart called the the Divine Abodes, the Brahma-Vihara. Loving-kindness, uh, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And it's very interesting, and it's linked with those, um, and very important. Actually, in the Tibetan tradition, when they practice loving-kindness as a formal practice, or loving-kindness, compassion, joy, they actually start with equanimity because it brings in the wisdom factor, very important for connecting with loving-kindness. So we, we develop an equanimity, we develop these different aspects of it. We develop the balance, as I was mentioning before, to be with everything. We develop a certain kind of evenness with all experiences. And one of my favorite stories that illustrates this is one I learned quite a long time ago from a friend named Larry Rosenberg, who is a well-known teacher on the East Coast. Some of you, anyone know Larry? No, anyone know Larry's books? Oh. Very good. Uh, books, I should say. Not very good that you don't know his books, but uh, very good. Um, he has a book called Breath by Breath, which is uh, studies the use of the breath in mindfulness practice. And he was actually my first mentor. Uh, when I was first starting to practice, over 30 years ago, he was my mentor. When we would, we would talk a lot together, he's in his uh, 70s now. He's the main teacher at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Society, you know, in the Boston area, and written several books. Also wrote a very good book on death and dying, and and practice. And um, Larry, before he studied mindfulness practice in this tradition, uh, was studying in the Zen tradition with a Korean teacher named Sun Sunim. And so this is one of his equanimity stories about this even quality of equanimity. So Larry, Um, was scheduled to teach a four-day Zen retreat that would start right after Christmas. He was living at the Cambridge Zen Center, and, um, you know, right before the retreat, everyone else at the Zen Center had gone home to be with their families. Those were the days when most practitioners were like in their 20s or 30s. (laughs) Times have changed. (laughs) You know, there's still a lot of young practitioners, but um, um, a lot of practitioners who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? So anyway, uh, Larry um, uh, hadn't, didn't go home for Christmas because he's Jewish. <laughs> so there he was, and it turned out that no one had signed up for the retreat. Larry went to his teacher, and he said, well, I guess we cancel the retreat, huh? And his teacher said, no. He said, I want you to lead the retreat. He said, even though no one's there? Yep. Lead the retreat. Do everything as you would otherwise. Do all the bowings. I I want you to give talks. (laughs) (laughs) And four-day retreat. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: Larry started out. He said for the first day he felt extremely foolish. Because he was doing all the bowing, all the Zen ritual. And especially when he was giving the talk, you know, there was no one there. There were cushions.
1: <laughs>
0: and he, he gave the talk. He said after about a day, and maybe after giving the first talk, something shifted for him. And he kept on doing it for another three days. And he said something really, what, got um, imprinted on him about something quite deep about this practice and really about our lives when we live according to our deeper values. That in some sense, it doesn't matter what the external conditions are. We just keep going with what's important for us. You know, that's a kind of equanimity, that's a kind of evenness. Whatever the conditions are, this is happening, that's happening, and we keep that center. You know, it's a practice, you know. We keep that center, we get knocked off center, but we come back. But increasingly, we develop that evenness. And Larry said that after that, you know, among meditation teachers, we sometimes have these discussions like, how many people were at the retreat? You know, like, 90, ah, full retreat, good retreat. How many were at their treat? Six. Oh, not so many people, huh? <laughs> you know, so you know, despite all our training, those discussions do occur. <laughs> and uh, Larry said after that experience, those kind of discussions mattered way, way less than they used to. Right? There was something that happened, and there was just this uh, quality of being able to be fully there. This condition, that condition, large number, small number, you know, someone likes it, someone doesn't like it. Just a kind of staying in himself. Very powerful quality, right? Very, very mature development, you know? And I think we probably all know when we're like that and when that's hard, right? And so that's the quality of, of evenness, you know? And it's really related to another quality, which we could call a quality of kind of unshakability. Equanimity has an aspect of unshakability to it, when it's really mature, that we can just be with whatever is occurring. You know, we develop this inner meditation in part. You know, I know, especially doing a lot of retreats, there are experiences in retreats which are sometimes hard. You know, they're beautiful experiences also, but there's experiences which are challenging. And as one does more and more practice, um, that ability just to be with whatever's happening grows. You know? And I can think of times when I've had very challenging experiences in retreats or out of retreats, and I found a solidity. I was thinking of one experience, which was quite a while ago, 20 years ago. Um, when I, It's a little bit of a scary story, but I was going, it was when I was coming to California from living in rural Ohio. And I was driving across the country. I think I've told this story. And um, I had all my possessions in my car. And I was... um, toodling along on Route 70. (laughs) And um, on a Saturday night, about 8.30 at night, in Kansas City, my car broke down. The transmission blew out, basically. And it broke down on an overpass without a breakdown lane, in the fast lane, going around a bend on a bridge right next to a 60-foot drop. Oh, my God. Yeah. Challenging conditions, as (laughs) as someone said. And um, um, I got out of the car. I knew it was a precarious situation. And for whatever reason, I was very centered, you know. I later attributed that to to practice. I'm you know maybe wrong, but that's what my, my attribution was, that there was a kind of suddenness. I knew it was very dangerous. I got a little bit away from the car. I was kind of alert for whatever might happen, and eventually um, someone came and uh, pushed me off the you know. Or I think they either pr- I think they may have pushed me actually off to the next um, uh, exit. You know, where, story didn't end there because I had to. Know, it was a Saturday night, it was not a was kind of in a warehouse area it was not very didn 't feel very safe and I had to continue but here I am and but um, <laughs> um but I think the the point is for me that there was something that felt um, that wasn 't scared that w- that was there in that kind of crisis situation and again i don 't know where that came from. I attributed it to it to a lot of years of practice. It was, at that point, it was like uh, about 12 years of practice, in my experience. And so, um, you know, maybe you've had experiences like that, where in a challenging situation you notice there's some level of calm or clarity or presence that maybe wasn't there before you began practicing. <coughs> you know, and It doesn't have to be like total crisis, it just might be something that previously you lost your balance or you became reactive, right? that's the that development, increasingly, of uh, this unshakable core. It's quite, um, quite a powerful aspect of equanimity, and we develop in that as we practice. There's also uh, very much in equanimity this aspect of wisdom, you know, this aspect of, really, of, of understanding, of... Um, Seeing the patterns of understanding our minds, of understanding the conditions. You know, I think I was thinking of this in in relation to uh, being with others and sometimes difficult relationships, that um, part of equanimity with difficult relationships might be the insight into what the factors are that are leading to the difficulties. Some kind of understanding of the conditions, you know. And I know this has been important for me often when they're challenging relationships with another, sometimes just to reflect on what's there in me, what's there in the other person, what's there in the situation, sometimes what's there in an organization, that contributes to making this difficult. So it's not just, I'm not caught in it, but I can sometimes see it as this web of causes and conditions that lead to this happening, to have that level of understanding. And that, that can be helped by reflection. This isn't just in our meditation but actually reflecting on this, even thinking out, maybe writing, doing a flowchart of your difficult relationship can be helpful. You know, that's part of equanimity. And I think out of that can also come compassion. That equanimity in its mature form is going to have compassion. (coughs) It's going to have this aspect, when we have that understanding, that can naturally lead to compassion. It's a quote from... uh, The poet Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the American poet, who said, I I don't have it in front of me, but it said something like, when you really have looked into the secret heart of those who are difficult for you, if you really know what's going on in their experience, there will be no room for hatred or enmity. When you know their sufferings, when you know their losses, when you know their um, pain, when you really, when you really know that, and we can connect that with how they're acting, you know, it's there can be some uh, relaxing, you know, maybe some forgiveness. So, compassion is part of equanimity, and that's quite important because, as I mentioned, there's there's there're tendencies sometimes for distortions to occur, for equanimity could be something cool, indifferent, removed, right? Apart from things, I'm equanimous because, actually, I don't care. That would be called a distortion of equanimity. And there's a, that great teaching, which we, I'm sure Sylvia and I mention a lot, called the Teaching of the Near Enemies, which is that uh, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity have what are called near enemies, which are, uh, as it were, Forms, apparent forms of those four qualities that are actually masquerading as the real thing. So, indifference masquerades as equanimity. Possessive love masquerades as loving kindness. Pity masquerades as compassion. And uh, actually, there are a lot, those are the classical ones, but we could actually fill it out. And a kind of attached, inflated excitement masquerades as joy. You know, so we could actually, and I think we could actually find a lot of other ways that these qualities get distorted. When I did my book on equanimity, I found ten other near enemies of of equanimity. Uh, please, is a question of
2: yeah, I just um, along these lines uh, of relationship too, um, and if you had um, equanimity in the understanding for the person you're in a relationship with, or they're, you know, the say in an abusive relationship, where where their pain comes from, yeah. but it's still um, they don't understand it. Yeah. So you're you're being abused. Yeah. Um, for someone who's so enlightened to have that kind of equanimity, would they be able to just you know face it and stay in it, or is it just yeah. to remove yourself? From well,
0: let's let's come back to that in the discussion. Cause, but I, I'll, I'll say that the right now we're primarily talking more about equanimity as an in inner quality. There, there was a question about if we, if we can really understand, let's say, in this case, an abusive relationship, how do we act? Does that mean we stay in it? I don't think being equanimous tells us to act one way or the other. That would be more probably the wisdom quality. But let's come back to that. And I'll, I'll uh, bring that in because uh, right now we're especially talking about what does equanimity look like as a, kind of from the inside. And, and in the moment we'll kind of shift towards, towards action a little bit more. Um, So, um, there are are these tendencies how equanimity can get distorted, you know, uh, and and it's really good to know that and to see and to help us be with the difficult situations more clearly. uh, One of my favorite uh, lines comes from this beautiful passage from uh, Gary Snyder, the the poet, and he was um, reflecting on the loss of the Buddha statues in Afghanistan at Bamiyans, you may remember. That happened, remember that happened in the spring of 2001, before 9-11. In the spring of 2001, the Taliban blew up the, um, these Buddhas, you know, and sort of a tremendous outcry, and so forth. And one kind of social critic, wrote a column in which he talked about, what are Buddhists all upset about? Don't you talk about impermanence? What's going on? You know, you know get real. <laughs> and, and this was Gary Snyder's response to that, which is really actually pointing to how there has to be that compassion, also, and the care. He said, um, ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. And he he cites a haiku from one of the great haiku writers from Japan named Isa from the late 18th, early 19th century. he He quoted it. Isa's haiku goes like this. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world. And he's Isa is referring to the Diamond Sutra. There's a text in which it talks about impermanence and says, like the dew at dawn, you know, like a cloud, this everything's impermanent. So he's kind of citing that. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And Snyder says, that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the dharma. It's a balance between uh, the wisdom aspect and the compassion aspect. And so, I would say that equanimity has to have, in its mature form, really have the heart there, as I was saying before. And also, again, my addition here, have the body fully there, and have the ability to have the centeredness in the body. So, clear mind of wisdom, seeing the causes and conditions, seeing impermanence, seeing everything, the open heart and the groundedness in the body. Those are, to me, aspects of equanimity. And then we bring equanimity into action. You know, as we do, we we practice. um, We practice on the cushion, develops equanimity, we develop mindfulness, but we also bring it into action. And I'll invite us in the next week to really especially look at bringing more equanimity to action. And I'll just give one teaching and then we can open things up. there are a lot of teachings about how to bring equanimity into action. One of the most simple, direct and powerful ones is called The Teaching of the Eight Worldly Winds. It's the Loka Dhamma. So it could be translated as the Eight Worldly Conditions or the Eight Conditions of Phenomena or the Eight Conditions of the World. And these are what basically knock us around. It's, it's actually, the winds is not a literal translation, but if that's, the Tibetans use the word winds because it, I think it's nice These are what blow us around off-center, and these are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And actually just focusing on those eight in the next week and looking at what happens when those occur and how you act with pleasure and pain, gain and loss, Fame and disrepute, or we could say, you know, someone says something nice about you, someone says something mean about you. How do you respond? Does that knock you off center? And it's not saying we have to force ourselves to stay on center, but it's saying this is where we train. This is where we practice. You look to where you get knocked off center, you notice it, you study it, and then you bring yourself back. That's training. It's not like I will be perfect and never be influenced by pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. I will just be a perfect practitioner. Thank you. So that's not real, right? So that's really important because I know any of us who have any degree of perfectionist conditioning, does anyone have any of that? (laughs) Any of us who have the slightest bit of that can be resentful when we're not perfect. Has anyone ever experienced that? (laughs) And so, I mean, this is actually both fundamental and difficult learning It's to actually remember that we don't learn anything unless we're imperfect. Kind of a a paradox that I discovered, I think about 15 years ago, I suddenly saw it one day. I don't want to make mistakes, but I want to learn. They don't go together. (laughs) They don't go together. We have to be open to making so-called mistakes in order to learn. So we can really look at these eight really, really uh, carefully, to look at, at how they work. So maybe I'll just close and we can open things up with um, two actually classical quotes about these, these qualities of being with the uh, eight worldly winds. And these are especially about praise and blame. And I think, for me, praise and blame are the hardest of those eight. You know, I, th- I found that, you know. The others are challenging, but praise and blame are harder. You know, I, I remember once when I was uh, co-directing a Buddhist Peace Fellowship Summer Institute. And we thought it was going well, and we did a kind of a, a little questionnaire halfway through as to how it was going. And, and we had like 50 responses, and 47 of them thought it was really going well and three of them had some criticisms, and all the organizers just totally focused on the three. It was like, you know, our conditioning, right? It was like, just get totally nervous about any criticism.
1: Ah.
0: It's a little bit of the perfectionism. So here are two quotes to end, from, uh, both from the Dhammapada, and classical beloved texts, Discourse of the Buddha. They find fault in one sitting silently, They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking in moderation. No one in this world is not found at fault. There has been, there is, and there will be no person who is only criticized or only praised. And then, just to finish, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep, deep lake is clear and undisturbed. So we have some time for uh, discussion. We could. Start if you'd like with that question. Would you like to do that? Sure. Um, let's see. So, this was a question about uh, suppose I see all the causes and conditions related to someone who I would say is abusing me or whatever language we use. And, and
2: also, I mean, it's like you said, that sort of of blaming yourself for, you know, I should be able to attain that equanimity towards all things, so maybe my practice is not good enough that I should be able to stay in these hard situations or be in a hard situation and not react
0: to it. Yeah, so I could, um, uh, some ideal, uh, this is a hard situation, it's maybe, maybe I'm receiving, what, maybe aggression or meanness or whatever, but however we would interpret it. And, um, and I think I should be able to handle this, or I should be able to be skillful, or I should be able to stay there. And uh, I think by your very comments, you're kind of pointing to the fact that that could be uh, problematic, right? right? That, so there's nothing about understanding better the causes and conditions that says one way or the other whether it's wise to stay in a particular situation. You know, whether it's a job, a relationship, a friendship, um, a situation. Um, And I I actually have found that um, leaving difficult situations and knowing when to leave is one of the hardest things in life. I found that, you know. I know that's true in relationships. And I know when I've sometimes been wondering about that, I've looked in literature for anyone who would write intelligently about that and not found much. <laughs> you know, it's Another interesting. Book. Huh? Another book. Not for me to write. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that that's important to see, that um, one has to um, look at a few factors and to see that you know, you might have some ideal that's sort of overriding things. It's very important to see. Some ideal, I should be able to stay with this. I, I, that's common, I think. I, I know from talking with people that that's quite common, that people think they need to stay in a situation that's somehow, what? Uh, cowardly or the sign of a low level of practice to leave a difficult situation. <clears throat> Sometimes that arises like that. But um, and that's not true. Uh, so... How to decide, though? Um, well, one way would just be to look what is, what are your mind states and reasonings around the situation, you know, or and and if you find that kind of perfectionism, that could be a sign that is problematic, right? If you find some train of thought that in other situations you know and might question, that that would be good to look at, and. Um, a good thing, and maybe in those situations, is to experiment, just to to try, you know, be away from it for a while, sort we'll see how that is like, or if they, if that's possible. Yeah. Thank you. Um, please, and then, yeah, and that why don't we all say our names as we uh, speak, also, and name your name in back was Brian. Brian, thank you. My
3: name is Shirley, and I and I think. Especially recently, in the last couple of months, I felt very autonomous. I mean, just yeah. really just very aware that when I judge myself, I judge other people. If I judge other people, I judge myself. It's just kind of mm. so really trying not to do, you know, and, and that's great. and not feeling that I need to. Very interesting. The other day, I had this conversation with a friend about an ex lover. Mm. And when I was done with the conversation, I, my whole body just felt this unequanimous. <laughs> you know, just all of these, So it was coming up through my body. Yeah. So and then, so when you're talking about the difference between the heart and the head and the body, it's, it was very um, poignant to me. It was, yeah. Just, oh, yeah, I mean, I don't have as much con- logical control with my body. I yeah. can do it with my head. Oh, yes, I'm not going to do that. And with my heart. Yeah. But with my body, it was a different... Damaged. Yeah. And it was fine. I was just aware of it and it went away of course. I just yeah. it. but that it's there. <laughs> and that we have these different types of you know. So so I don't know if there's any more about the body, um, Yeah. I mean you don't control the body. The body has its own mm-hmm. logic as it were.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, what I want to encourage us to do in the next week, if you so choose, if you feel called in this way, is really to give two areas of focus. One is I would look especially at these eight worldly winds and see how they manifest. You know, just be on the lookout for them. And then secondly, you know, see how equanimity can manifest in the body, the heart, and the mind. And if if those are too much, just do one of those. You know, just focus on one of those. But those are good practices. I think yeah, I think the some of the body work that we can do is it takes a while. It's a little bit longer term work to really be grounded in the body. I think, it, in my experience, it takes some further training. It took me training to really be more, you know, in my belly, as it were, and to really have that be in my center. Um, so, and then just in terms of how things, I think being aware of how different. Um, experiences manifest or impact on your body is very very helpful, you know. So there are so many ways in which uh, uh, awareness of the body can play a very uh, big role. You know, we have retreats that are just dedicated to the body. And I know, I think it was about a year ago I gave five or six talks on practicing with the body that are that are on Dharma Seed. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these talks are <laughs> recorded and are available on the web to download you know, under Dharma Seed. So, um, yeah, so body practice could mean just awareness. And um, I like to use the body also as an access point sometimes. Sometimes we notice something on the body before we notice at at the level of the mind or the heart. So the body can be uh, a doorway into our inner being when we notice certain things happening, you know, like I try to notice, for example, how my body is tense. You know, study my tension patterns. So if I'm, you know, I've I've noticed over time that if I'm uh, holding my hands tightly like this and my chest is a little caved in and my shoulder is a little forward, that can be a sign of um, being a little off-balance. And I can actually just shift, sometimes very subtly, at those places of the body and it changes consciousness. It's quite interesting. And so, part of equanimity might simply mean to change your posture. It's interesting. You know, we talk about balance. It's a metaphor, right? We use that as a metaphor for the state of the mind, but it actually also refers to the physical reality. And if you look at your posture and you're in a situation where things are difficult, you could probably have your posture most reflect being balanced, and it will shift your mind. Very interesting. You know, very interesting. So the body can play uh, all sorts of roles in terms of cultivating equanimity. Yeah. We, I, I'll just may say one last thing. When we did the two-year training program for people doing social service and social change work called the Path of Engagement, which I was the director of, and we did that um, two-year program, we emphasized body practices a lot. And we had Tija Bell, who teaches Qigong, as a core faculty member, and we did, um, we did, for every one of our retreats, we did two hours a day of body practices that uh, helped. And, and we encouraged people to bring that into their being out in the world as a way to uh, develop balance and equanimity. And so, uh, you know, we can do that through yoga, through qigong, through just paying attention, through even something like walking meditation. I think it's very good for, for balance. Okay, so maybe um, just two more, and then we'll finish. Yeah.
4: Um, in the last two, three weeks, I have had this <laughs> appalling lack of equanimity mm. that just uh-huh. gradually built and mm-hmm. built. Actually, in the beginning, I thought I was very patient, but mm. as time went on, I just lost it. Yeah. And this was all around what I think of as that great force of darkness called AT and T And I just No judgment. No judgment. Yeah. And I felt helpless and hopeless and just completely beaten down. And I just you know, I was kinda of sitting on my head watching myself thinking, Who are you? I mean I I was crying. I just lost it, totally. And I kept thinking about my practice, trying to pull myself back into some kind of stability and some sort of sense of acceptance. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So what I would love to hear from you is any ideas you have about when you really have gone over the edge.
0: Um, yeah, um, come back. <laughs> question is, what happens when one's really going over the edge or with a really challenging issue? And you know, as you we were talking, I was thinking about, there's a poem by June Jordan, who, who used to teach at Berkeley, um, and she has a poem which was originally written for Martin Luther King and has lines in it which go like this, anytime you take on a mountain, you better just take care.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe I could read the whole poem another time but um, but um, yeah, if you're dealing with a large corporation, large institution um, take care of yourself, and it's really true for anything that's really like something large you know, she was referring to Martin Luther King taking on racism right, or when we, I mean I think it's not, not necessarily just on a outward or institutional level, it's like when we take on wanting to become loving. That's a big thing. And so that's also, you better take care, because if you're really serious about it, there are ups and downs, and you're in there for the long haul. So you have to take care of yourself, take breaks. If you find yourself out of balance, just take a break for a while. And do what brings, the basic guideline for practice generally, if you're out of balance, do that which brings you back to balance. As simple as that. So you have to know, have a repertoire of, here are four ways I come back to balance. You know, which could be um, taking a walk, being in nature, talking with a friend, being with beauty, listening to great music, doing certain kinds of meditation, doing certain kinds of reading, and so forth. Taking, taking a break, taking time out, you know, being away from the difficult uh, stimuli for a day, a week, whatever. So, you're not going to be of use if you're out of balance. And so, it's really important to know that and then simply the mindfulness lets you know you're out of balance. And when you notice that, just pull back and then do what you need to do to come back to balance. That's not selfish, it's just really important.
4: I could kind of do it, but then the next event would occur mm-hmm. and it would take like 30 seconds. And it
0: was yeah. So just keep um, keep doing that practice and and uh, yeah and again maybe um, sometimes their next events keep happening and sometimes you have the choice of taking a break. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes we don't. Yeah. Um couldn't be real brief here because of time, but is that or I, I will be brief. You don't have to be brief, I'll be brief.
1: <laughs> okay, well I I will be brief. Okay um, uh, This somatic uh, dimension yeah um, you know, I, I found it difficult to find out about it. Yeah So I was so glad that you um, put it on our screen today Yeah um, And you've mentioned about events that have been held in the past Yeah. Here, but are there some coming in the immediate immediate future at Spirit Rock?
0: That have to do with somatic practices. Yes. Yeah, you know, I could try to bring some in next week. You know, I could do that. Um, yeah, qigong, uh, qigong and yoga are taught at most of our retreats. Um, there's also, you know, Friday mornings. There's yoga and meditation as a regular class, with typically with Janice Gates, who's a wonderful yoga teacher, and with uh, uh, Dana De Palma as a meditation teacher. That's an option um Janice has a studio in San Anselmo called the called the Yoga Garden uh, where a lot of teachers very good teachers are Tija Bell teaches there you could study he's he's uh, I, at, on my month long retreat I did Qigong every morning for thirty minutes which is wonderful. Ming Tong gu is a uh, Qigong teacher teaches here. Um, there are retreats on the body at times there is also um if you look on Dharma Seed, there are a lot of talks on the body. You know, like I, you know, did have from time to time done here done series, and those are available. And you could also, if you look on their list of retreats, you might be able to find talks from past retreats on the body. But the best thing, and then there are a lot of other things. You know, I uh, if you want to go further, there uh, are various kinds of other somatic practices, you know, which are quite wonderful. You know, I I have a training. I did training in the body-based psychotherapy called Hakomi, which is amazing work. You know, and I can bring in some of the practices from that here, which are quite wonderful. So there's, it's, a, it's an amazing area. You know, and I think it's something also that we are contributing to the whole tradition of meditation at this time in culture because it's not, it's, we need it right now. And like I said, I think it wasn't quite the central need 2,500 years ago like it is now. Just one thing sure. to, to, to
1: say back to you, something that you said. Yeah. Well, and that you're saying now. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think this point about the Western world. Yeah. I mean, yes, we're in a post-Cartesian era yeah. of, of modernity, trying to break out of it. Right. And this um, body-mind split. Yeah. Um, so, um, so again, for you to. As you did, bring this into our focus and and why we have trouble integrating the the body yeah. into our practice. I, I do want to tell something very quickly, just like a joke in a way, though it's not a joke. It's real. Um, I, I I once did an experiment of, of my practice. I hate roller coasters, but my son wanted me to go on a roller coaster in Las Vegas, and I viewed it as a as a test. You know, yeah. could I practice my. Um, meditation on this right no way no way i couldn't even walk literally as when i got off that thing and you know and and so the body having its own autonomy um, was brought home to me in the most profound way because i actually ex- did my experiment feeling quite optimistic i thought I'm, I'm 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 i know how to focus i know how to concentrate i'm going to be so peaceful
0: <laughs> thank you thank you yeah yeah Pascal once said that the heart has its reasons of which reason knows not we could say the same thing of the body the body has its reasons of which reason knows not so uh, yeah and but I think we all we, uh, mature development everything valued everything developed friendly with each other mind heart body Very nice. So, um, Okay, so let's just sit to close. And I'll invite us again in the next week to choose either one or both of these two emphases. The first being on looking at these eight wins. And you might even just want to look at two of them when they come in your experience. Pleasure and pain. Gain and loss. Fame and disrepute, which could be like people thinking well of you, people not thinking well of you. And then the last, praise and blame. And you might want to write those down, you know, put them by your telephone, put them in your pocket, just to, just to kind of look at how you respond when those are present. That's the first practice. And the second then is just to ha- maybe have some sense of developing equanimity as both something that has to do with wisdom and the heart and then also with the body. So I'll invite you to set your intentions for the next week, the next period. And may we offer the fruits of our time together to all with whom we come in contact, and beyond that, into the world for the benefit of all beings. Thank you so much.